Assalamu alaikum everyone, welcome to the Forgotten History Podcast, the podcast where we discuss Islamic and Eastern history. And today's topic is about the fall of the Ottomans, and we are joined by none other than Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you for having me, Forgotten History. I'm happy to be here and uh, can't wait to get into this topic and talk about it a little bit more. Jazakallah. Do you want to introduce yourself, Islamic History Podcast? Sure, sure. Well, um, as the name goes, Islamic History Podcast is a podcast I started about five, six years ago. I've always been interested in Islamic history. The impetus or the reason for my interest was um, I was uh, in college in the, during the 9-11 attacks. I'm originally from New York City. My wife and I were both raised in New York City and married in New York City before we moved out uh, from the city. And um, after, that, after that event, after the uh, 9-11 attacks, there was a lot of, lot of uh, vitriol against Muslims, a lot of uh, um, people saying lots of media and different news outlets saying, spreading lots of lies or half-truths about the history of Muslims and Islam. And I realized that I couldn't really um, counter many of them because I didn't know that much about Islamic history. And I have a feeling that there are probably many other Muslims who felt the same way, who probably thought there was some bias in these negative comments about Muslims and about Islam, but didn't have the, the, uh, the information to counter it. So it stuck in my mind for a long time. And I, try, I tried studying history. I did study it here and there. But eventually I decided, you know, I really want to go ahead and try to detangle a lot of these um, stories, a lot of these events that happen in our lives today and try to figure out the historical context, understand it from a non-biased point of view and help Muslims understand why the world is the way it is today. So we can not get into conspiracy theories, so we don't have to be victim to, to um, anti-Islamic bias attacks or people who don't have that much information themselves and try to understand it a little bit better. So that's my reason for doing the Islamic History Podcast. I'm not a historian, um, I'm a fan of history. I'm a history buff, as they say, <laughs> but uh, so I don't really try, I can't give you the scientific breakdown from, the, from a historian perspective, but what I do is uh, I, I read a lot of books, I read a lot of articles, news articles, um, um, scholarly articles to try to understand a certain period and turn it into an interesting, um, interesting story-like format. So you can, so the average person can listen to it and try to get an idea of how this, how certain events happened that we're all dealing with or, or see happening on a daily basis today. And so I, I generally prefer long episodic tales that go that stretch over sometimes centuries or maybe even, or at least decades. And so usually every season focuses on one single event and gives a whole history behind that event. So um, so that's pretty, that's pretty much what the Islamic History Podcast is. And that is what I try to do with my intent behind it. Yeah, Jazakallah for that. I think that gives a real background of what you're doing. And I know recently you've, because I haven't been listening to you for five, six years, um, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, I've been recently listening to your stuff and it's the, what I found is that it's just so much information to take in about Islamic history that no one knows about, like the depth that you go to, especially about like what you're recently doing, I think you're doing something about the Ottomans, right? Like the beginning mm -hmm. of like Sultan Bayezidab, you've done one about that as well. I feel that's really right, right. in terms of like the stuff I've been doing recently when I've um, made videos about Islamic history and even just the fact that I started the podcast is that people can actually do this and it's enjoyable. It's not something that, and it's something that they have a passion for. So it's good to do as well. So that's mm -hmm. like um, a real reason that I felt 
when I wanted to start my thing, it's similar to how you were. Like, a lot of people don't know about Islamic history. And it's something that, like, for me, when I started, is because um, I was learning about the Crusades in school. And I was like, there's mm-hmm. got to be two sides to the story. It's not just Rich the Lionheart is the best leader ever and <laughs> stuff like that. So it's like that. Mm-hmm. And I feel your story, I kind of, I can kind of resonate with your story, especially, like, the fact that you're saying how a lot of people were saying negative stuff about Islamic history and stuff. But if you right. don't know it, you can't, you can't argue against it, right? So um, Exactly. Yeah. But anyways, I think we should get into the topic of today. So obviously I mentioned that you were doing the Ottomans recently. You were giving a, a mm-hmm. about the Ottomans. Um, me personally, I have always been interested in the Ottoman Empire. It's a really interesting topic for me, especially because it's the lot, like most recent. It's like very recent. It fell less than 100 years ago, nearly 100 years ago. Right. Um, so it's a really interesting topic for me. And today we're going to be discussing the fall of the Ottomans. So mm-hmm. if you want to start off of why, because there are obviously multiple reasons, but if you want to go into one of the major reasons, then you can. Explain. Sure. Well, one, one thing I want to make clear is um, regarding the Ottoman Empire in general, it's um, no matter what topic I discuss, uh, the reason why I'm talking about it now, I'm talking about a more um, recent event right now. But because the Ottoman Empire lasted for such a long time and it played such a significant role in Islamic history, there's almost no anything dealing with Muslims and Islam within the past six, seven hundred years is going to come in contact with the with the Ottoman with the Ottoman Empire because they were just so significant in Islamic history. It was such a long time. So any event, you can take almost any event going on in the Muslim world today, not every single event, but almost any event you can tie it back to the Ottoman Empire, simply because, it, as you mentioned, it was very recent in terms of um, Islamic dynasties or, or Muslim empires. It was very recent, and also it has been around for such a long time. It is perhaps the longest standing significant Islamic um, dynasty in the world that has ever existed. It was definitely around much longer than the Umayyads. It was around longer than the Abbasids, had more influence than the Abbasids did, at least more on our lives today. Yeah. So it has been, it is, um, it is impossible, nearly impossible. There are some aspects where the Ottoman Empire may not come in play, but it is almost impossible to talk about any modern event without mentioning the Ottoman Empire. So I'm not an expert on Ottoman history either, but whenever I try to talk about any particular topic, for instance, um, World War One, which is we're, we're going to get, which at least to your to your question um, and the topic of this of this uh, show eventually. Yeah. When you talk about World War One, you can't help but talk about the Ottoman Empire. For for one thing, they were involved in it. Excuse me, but also because they were part of the, um, you know, that led to their to the ultimate oh. downfall. Yeah. I'm so. So that's one thing. It's just impossible. So I, because I did, um, I think it's season five of the Islamic History Podcast, mm-hmm. I focused on the impact that World War I had on the Muslim world. And it is my personal belief that that was perhaps the most significant event in the past 200 years to impact Muslims. It basically, um, it tore apart the Middle East. It created the conflict in Israel and Palestine. It ruined it uh, into the, the Khilafat. It did lots of things um, that uh, led to the world that we have today. So um, I had I, I went and studied the um, World War One, but I wanted wanted to do it from a from a, a Muslim perspective, primarily from an Ottoman Empire perspective, uh, perspective. And it's hard to do when you don't speak Turkish because you know everything is written in English, and that's usually by 
the victors and the victors, the one who won the war, the British or the Americans, they tend to give it, give their own spin on it. So it's, it can be kind of difficult to, to read through those things and try to get a, a good perspective. But I was able to uh, hopefully give a, a fairly biased, biased account of that, um, unbiased account of, of that. Um, and in doing so, I had to go back to the hundred years before the Ottoman Empire got into the world and got into World War One, or the hundred years before World War One started, and what led um, what led to the events that eventually got the Ottoman Empire involved in World War One. Yeah. Um, there's um, and also I want to actually say that we can look backwards in time and say that these events led to the downfall of the Ottoman Empire and all. But let's understand that, number one, all empires eventually fall, yeah. all of them. And so the Ottoman Empire had a very good run, a very good run. Yeah. It was around before the British Empire, and it fell only 20 years before the British Empire fell. It was around hundreds of years before the Spanish Empire and lasted long after the Spanish Empire was gone. It was around before the United States was ever even thought of, <laughs> and it ended before, you know, I don't know how long the United States is going to last, but I, I don't know if the United States will last nearly 700 years like the um, Ottoman Empire did. Mm. So the um, you can say the same thing for the Russian Empire. The Ottoman Empire was around before the Russian Empire, mm -hmm. and it lasted a few years longer than the Russian Empire. Yeah. So every empire has its course. It's going to, you know, every empire falls falls eventually, and it is not clear that in the midst of it, while the Ottomans were going through their turmoil or trying to hold their empire together and slowly losing bits and pieces to the Russians or the Austrians, or maybe even to the French sometimes, or to the Italians, depending on what part of the world it was, um, it is not clear if they realized that they were in uh, down. But let's be, just keep in mind that every empire eventually falls. The Umayyads fell. The, eventually ended. Um, the Abbasids fell. Every empire eventually falls. So we can look back at it now and try to decipher what led to those things. There are many, many things that led to it. And we'll uh, discuss that. The war was only part of it, but the war was a thing that kind of broke the, uh, that kind of broke it all open and um, led the empire to fall apart. I would agree. So I think, let's just take a step back for a second. So the Ottoman mm -hmm. Empire, the I think the core issue with the, with any empire really, especially an Islamic dynasty, was its succession. Because it, mm -hmm. I think the issue of the Seljuks, for example, like the Seljuk Empire, which the Ottomans were obviously like inspired by, you'd say, they right. because they didn't have a right method of succession. One sultan would die, there would be a civil war, and then another sultan. Even the Ottomans. It's their succession problem was another issue when, like, they would kill the brother of the next sultan, like his son. They would kill the brother, and that was another like it showed the cruelty of the Ottomans. And then you had the the fact that there was a lot of issues going on outside of the Ottoman Empire. Like, I, I think you can't just blame the fall of the Ottomans purely internally. There's a lot of stuff going outside of the empire that occurred, such Definitely. as yeah. such as you know like the British. Like colonizing the colonization of Africa, the superpowers, all this stuff happening, right? And the Ottomans, mm -hmm. they they were no longer in control of the most important trade route in the world because then you had 
the quote-unquote discovery of America, not really the discovery, but you know what I mean, then mm-hmm. the Ottomans, like, it's almost as if they were, they were, when they were just rising, their power kind of dwindled after Suleiman the Magnificent. I don't think that it's fair to just base the fall of the Ottomans on, like, the second siege of Vienna. Because, yeah, that in- impacted their um, morale, but realistically, the Ottomans didn't lose too much land after that, except for 1699 when they lost uh, Hungary and other parts of land there. But to just blame it on like that, or to just blame it on one thing, is it's not really good because there's so many factors. You had the pressure from the British and Russians, even the Austro-Hungarians, mm-hmm. you had World War One. you had the rising nationalism rising within the empire. You had all these factors, you had the Sultan trying to um, hold on to the hope, Sultan Abdul Hamid, his deposition, the Young Turk Revolution, like the fall yeah. of, like the Caliphate's loss of power, declaring bankruptcy, all of these, the fact that they were seen, seen as the sixth man of Europe, all of these were key issues, and it's like, it's why the Ottomans fell, but before we get into why they fell, we have to get into what the Ottoman Empire was initially, right? Like, what were the Ottoman Empire? So do you want to go into um, about the Ottoman Empire? Well, I, sure, I, I've, um, in the current uh, season I'm doing of the Islamic History Podcast, I've discussed in depth the, the um, mostly the Ottoman conquest of the Balkans. And that led to me not going really deep into it, but at least getting a, a basic understanding of how the Ottoman Empire formed in itself. So um, one of my, is either a strength or a weakness I have, is that um, I, l- I like discussing warfare and politics on my podcast. So mm-hmm. when I go through these things, I tend to overlook some of the finer um, cultural details of any society and really mostly because I don't want to cast too much judgment on a certain or any particular culture that I'm not a part of. So I, I try to tend to stay away from discussing the inner workings of that society or its culture unless it, it truly impacts the outcome of a certain event. Mm. So I try to focus mostly on warfare and, polit- and politics when it comes to me, mostly because they're interesting to me. And, um, that probably is the main thing. They're just interesting to me. And so um, when I discuss the um, origin of the Ottoman Empire, I don't go real. De- I don't go into a lot of depth about you know women's standings or um, the um, the fratricide. As fratricide really came up, I believe, later on in the um, Ottoman Empire, not in the very very early beginning. Yeah, yeah. So okay, okay. So it's um it's mostly about the origin of the Turks and also the warfare and the warfare and the a little bit of the politics, but the warfare of the battles of the Ottoman Empire versus the various Balkan states and the Crusader states, not the Crusader states, the Crusaders or the Europeans who launched crusades against the Ottomans. And so that's really where my focus is. But in the beginning, the Ottomans started off as, you mentioned there was the Seljuks. The Seljuks had a break, um, I can't remember the name right now, but um, one of the Seljuk princes broke off from the Seljuk Empire and, be- and started the, um, the uh, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rome, which was based in, in Anatolia. And from there, the Mongols came. The Mongols subjugated the Seljuk Sultanate of Rome, turned them into a vassal, uh, kind of limited their power. And eventually, the Seljuk Sultanate of Rome and the remainder of the Seljuk Empire as well kind of fell apart into a bunch of small states called Beyliks. These um, One of these Beyliks was, and this is where the, the um, it's somewhat fictional, but some but slightly historical TV show that everyone loves, Urtural. Yeah. And, um, yeah. This is where live it kind of picks up from from um, these uh, one of these small bailiffs trying to survive during this uh, conflict 
between the uh, the latter Mongol states and the Mamluks and trying to find their way in that period. And some of this is is a uh, uh, legend. It's hard to really prove a lot of it, but some of it is a lot of it appears to have been true. So like, in any case, uh, it's romanticized going. as well, right? Like it's not. Yeah. You should never watch. Yeah. Just because oh, it's history. It's it's history. Yeah, it's got his. Mm. It's like a kernel of history, but it's it's completely romanticized and everything like that. It's, it's true, but it's a great. Yeah, show. it is very much. It's very much. It's an entertaining show. Though. I think it's a good. It's a good yeah. introduction. Like um. You know, a lot of things, I mean, Lord knows we get so much romanticization of World War One and World War Two from the European perspective yeah. you know, for, or from the American perspective. I mean, you would think that that the United States pretty much saved the world in World War Two. And when <laughs> really the Russians probably had a lot to had a lot more to do with it than the, than the Americans did. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and even and same thing, World War One. So it's just it's OK. It's not it's not um, from my. Um, uh, entertainment perspective, and at least it gets people interested in history. I think Ertural and all of those um, modern um, historical uh, television series or movie series that have been made in Turkey, I think they're they're a good thing for getting for for getting Muslims introduced to this period of uh, of history and introduced. So I think it is good for that, and hopefully people will delve into it, and maybe find out how, just how much truth and fantasy or romanticization was involved in it. But it's, a, it's good overall, so I don't really have a problem with it. Yeah, yeah. But, but, the, um, but in any case, the, uh, I know I probably went, went way off topic, but <laughs> the, um, the Ottomans were primarily just one of these small bailiffs. They start off with, um, as we all know, from one of their early chieftains or early leaders named Osman, which is the Turkish pronunciation of the Arabic name Osman. Yep. And of course, you know, the, the major companion of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Uthman ibn Affan. Yeah. And from there, it's, uh, it went through, it eventually became the word Ottoman, mostly in English. It had different words. From Cause, different... Yeah, it's because the, the Arabic term for, uh, for Usman is actually Uthman, but the Turkish mm -hmm. called him Usman. And then the Spanish, I think it was, he translated this as Ottoman, and then it became Ah, okay. And then it became Ottoman. Okay, that's good to know. Alhamdulillah. Um, eventually, the Ottomans got involved with, um, well, the, Os the Osmanli Beylik, which is what it wasn't, um, they weren't really empire at that time. It was really just a Beylik, a small independent state, or not really a state, um, maybe a, a, a tribal region, basically. Uh, it, it happened to push against the Byzantine Empire that was starting to dwindle itself. And the Byzantine Empire was going through several upheavals. It had lost most of Anatolia to the Seljuks and then the Seljuk Sultan of Rome. And it had, it had gone to war against the Crusaders themselves. They were, the Byzantine Empire was crumbling. And so a lot of its territory in, the, um, in Anatolia, it really couldn't, didn't have the resources, the Byzantine Empire, that it didn't have the resources to maintain those territories. And so they often partnered with different Turkish bailiffs and war, warlords and, and warriors and stuff to help them maintain those um, the little bit, this last few holdings in Anatolia. Eventually they partnered with the Osmanli Beylik and the Osmanli Beylik did very well, helped the Ottoman, I'm sorry, helped the uh, Byzantine em emperor, I believe his name was John V, I believe, helped him stay on his, stay on his throne for a while, helped him against his enemies. But while they were helping him, they were also expanding. And eventually they crossed over the Bosporus Strait into um, Gallipoli and that's their first introduction. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. the reign of 
Usman's son, Orhan. Um, yes, yes. That was that was the seed of that was the first Ottoman seed in Europe, right? Like that was a right, right, right. Thing. And yeah. Gallipoli, and it's funny that you mentioned Gallipoli because we're talking about the beginning of the Ottoman tier, but the fall of the Ottomans, which is the topic of this video, a major part of mm -hmm. the fall is World War One, and Gallipoli is one of the most crucial battles in all of uh, Ottoman history. The Battle of Gallipoli against the British and basically Australians um, in World War One, yeah. where they defended. Because they showed that even though the Ottomans were quote unquote the sick man of Europe and whatever, they still managed to defend what they what was there. And it was after this that they kind of dwindled. But it, this was like a major victory at the time, the the Battle of Gallipoli. Right, so. right. Um, in uh, I believe season five of uh, my of my podcast, we did we did talk about is World War One and of course the um the uh, Entente powers attack on on um, Gallipoli. And that started, if we, we can just jump right to that. Um, as I mentioned, warfare and politics is, is, my, <laughs> is my thing. So I can kind of talk about Gallipoli a little bit. The, um, the Europeans, the different powers, the Axis powers, the um, Entente powers, or the um, Central powers, Axis is World War II, the Central powers of the Entente powers, they were kind of in a stalemate um, in their trench warfare in Europe. And the war had gone on, had become much more deadly and much more violent and was seeming to go on much longer than anyone had expected. No one expected it to drag on as long as it, as it did. And it was more devastating than the British, the French, or even the Germans really expected it to be. Yeah. So the, um, even the Ottomans for that, for that matter, they didn't expect it to last as long as it did either. The British were looking for, well, the Entente powers, the British and the French primarily, uh, were looking for a way to knock out the central powers quickly. So their hope was to go through what they consider the soft underbelly of the central powers, which was the Ottoman Empire. They believe that the, and they and rightfully so, that the German, the Ger Germany was the main uh, force, uh, was carrying really carrying the load of mili military wise, and um, against the uh, Entente powers. So they were hoping to go through uh, Anatolia, capture Istanbul. And then from there, move north to the Balkans through um, Bulgaria and then into Serbia, which is where this whole thing started off in the first place. And then hopefully then um, into Germany and force the uh, central powers to negotiate for peace and give the um, Entente powers a favorable peace. And so they figured if they can get through the, um, the, the Dardanelles Straits and into Constantinople, Istanbul, um, the Western is still called Constantinople, but it was officially known as Istanbul by then uh, within the Ottoman Empire. They can get to Istanbul. What you're saying about, mm -hmm. about Constantinople was actually called Constantinia in the time of the Ottoman. Mm -hmm. And that was just basically the, mm -hmm. the word for Constantine in Turkish. And then after um, around the 1900s, they, were, they just translated it as Stan, Istanbul which means like the city within the city or to the city. And then it just okay. slowly became Istanbul. And it was symbolic, okay. Okay. It's symbolically called it Islam, Islambul. It's the city of Islam. And that was like named mm -hmm. after they conquered it. But it stayed as Constantinople. But what you were saying about that, the conquest of Constantinople, I think it's underestimated how much of a important conquest that was in terms of history in general. Like that is one of the most like five, one of the, out of the top five most important events of history in general because it, it was the that it was the end of the Roman Empire 
which had lasted for right. thousands of years, uh, almost more than a thousand mm-hmm. years. It was the beginning of the Ottoman. It was like the beginning of the Ottoman. It became an empire. It was seen as an empire after that, and it was the beginning right, of right. expansion. The just Islamic. The Muslims had finally taken Constantinople. They've been trying since the time of Ayub al Ansari of the Ottoman, and now they had finally taken it. And this was like a huge moment in terms of history in general because. Yes, it's just the main centre of Europe, the main centre of the world, was now under Muslim control, right? Right, right. The um, Now, I did discuss the uh, conquest of Constantinople in, uh, I think, the episode I did last week. It discussed, we discussed the, um, the actual battle itself, the politics that led up to it. Um, uh, Constantinople had been a thorn in the uh, Ottoman side for for years, really centuries, as the Ottomans began, this is, we're talking now in the uh, 13th and 14th century now, well, the 14th and 15th century now, as the Ottomans began to um, to lock down the Balkans and they were slowly conquering the Balkans. The um, the Ottomans had to, had to always deal with the Byzantines because they completely surrounded Constantinople. Their territory completely surrounded Constantinople. Constantinople had a few islands, uh, a few territories that were still vassals, but for the most part, the Byzantine Empire was really just Constantinople and a few surrounding areas. And they're completely surrounded by the Ottomans. And every time the Ottomans went to went to war against some other major European power, whenever there was a crusade against the Ottomans, the Byzantines were always there to help other crusaders. And so uh, Mehmed II, I believe, really decided that um, this, had to, this had to go away. This Constantinople had to, had to become part of, of uh, the Ottoman Empire. He had to take it over. They had been back and forth putting uh, Constantinople as a vassal, putting under siege, yeah, punishing them. They were practically a vassal at the time of conquest, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was a vassal. And they were, um, they were, as we would say in uh, in the United States, the Ottomans are pretty much punking the Byzantines by this time. They were just smacking them around and bullying them. Uh, but it was just time to make it official and just absorb the city into the Ottoman Empire because it made no sense to have its fifth column sitting right there in the midst of your territory. Strategically, it was the smart, it was the, it was, there's nothing else anyone could expect. No one, there's no reason for the Ottoman Empire to let this fifth column, let this, um, this enemy state, because the Byzantines were not their friends so by any means, let the enemy state sit there within their territory. This made no strategic sense. Eventually, they, uh, the Ottomans put it under siege, and the overwhelming power destroyed, destroyed it, uh, not destroyed Constantinople, but destroyed the uh, Byzantine royalty, at least, and took over the city. And it was, um, it was an amazing event. It, many people believe that it fulfilled the Prophet Muhammad's Hassan prophecy that Muslims would eventually take it, and, and it was taken by a Muslim government, by an Islamic government, that, that despite the Ottomans' flaws and... and um, and imperfections, it still tried its best to rule by Sharia, by Islamic law. So it was uh, conquered by a Muslim, by a, a Muslim Islamic power. Now, I understand people, some people may not believe that this was the fulfillment of Prophet Muhammad's po- uh, prophecy. That's beyond my understanding, <laughs> beyond what I can actually say. But on the face of it, it looks like it uh, it, it was a fulfillment of the prophecy. Yeah, like it's a, legit- so, it's a legitimate hadith, right? Like this this was yeah. uh, in in, important moment because the prophet predicted this 900 years before right right i think that is another sign for me that it's islam islam realistically because it's how could a small tribe in mecca like a small tribe in mecca even dream 
of conquering mm-hmm. the most important, the center of the world at the time, the most important city in the world. Even Trima conquered. They didn't even. They they didn't even at this time remember like Rome wasn't the most important city. Constantinople was the right. center of knowledge, of wealth, and the fact that the the prophet would dare to even say no. When I say dare, I don't mean it that way. But I'm saying the fact mm-hmm. that he was yep. saying the Muslims will conquer it. Verily, the Muslims conquer it. Like this was shocking. Like for everyone, they were like, "How how are we supposed to conquer? We, we were just exiled by the Quraysh, and we're going to conquer the most the mm-hmm. most influential city in the world." And then, forty years later, Ayub al Ansari is outside of the gates of Constantinople. How far had they come? Like it's crazy when you think of it in that way. And then after that, they tried to take it before even in Sultan Bayezid's time, they tried to take it um, in fourteen two or fourteen o one. Sultan Bayezid tried to take Constantinople. He failed. And then he had Fatah Sultan Mehmed, his one of his great grandchildren. So I think we talked mm-hmm. a bit about the. Ottomans, who they were, and then we talked a bit about like the the first early conquests, and then we can kind of go into Suleiman the Magnificent, and then discuss after his death why they kind of started to stagnate and eventually collapse. So Suleiman the Magnificent, mm. if if you want to speak a bit about him, and then we can go into some details. Okay. Well, well Suleiman's reign actually is outside of the. Sp- I told you, I, I, discussed, I discussed things that I can discuss, definitely the fall of the Ottoman Empire from around maybe the 1500s or so, um, up until how it slowly began to kind of um, dwindle after that. But um, slamming the Magnificent's reign, I don't really get into because it hasn't really impacted any of the topics I've really I've discussed so far. So I can't go deep into his reign, but I can discuss some of the things that happened yeah. uh, just after his reign. Okay, so... Quick summary, and then I'll give some detail. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, the, the Ottomans were an empire, and they had conquered many people who were not Muslim and brought them into their reign. And some of these non-Muslims accepted Islam, but many of them did not. And uh, this is particularly in the Balkans and uh, also in the Caucasus as well, but particularly in the Balkans. And there was, the Ottomans had a had a millet system, and it changed over the centuries, but essentially uh, based upon the the um the underlying Islamic belief that we can't force anyone to be Muslim. Uh, and not saying it never happened, but it rarely happened. So it rarely happened. But the Ottomans couldn't force Islamic Islamically they couldn't force their Islamic beliefs on other on other people. Yeah. And so they generally allowed their non-Muslim subjects to live under their own um, their own religious leaders, which led to the um which had good had good and bad. It allowed these um most usually Christian, but sometimes Jewish as well, but mostly Christian um, Ottoman subjects to practice their religion freely. They, they weren't forced to give up alcohol and stuff like that. They could drink alcohol, even though Muslims, Muslims were not allowed to drink it officially. Uh, so they, these things, this gave them a significant amount of religious freedom, but the government was also kind of hands-off. In most cases, they're different. Different Ottoman empires were more restrictive than others. Different Ottoman sultans were more restrictive than others. But generally speaking, the Ottoman Empire kind of just let these non-Muslim subjects stay within their own realm, so long as they didn't cause trouble and they paid their taxes and didn't try to um, cause any rebellions or anything. They kind of let them do their own thing. It didn't force Islamic practices on them. This allowed, however, this allowed for um, rebellious nature, for rebellions, for plots, for conspiracies to fester pretty much under the Ottoman eye. And 
also they were surrounded by enemies. First, it was the Austrians and the Hungarians, I'm talking about the Ottoman Empire, that is. First, it was the Austrians and the Hungarians who were constantly plotting with the Serbs living within the Ottoman Empire. Um, to a certain extent, on, on the other, in the Caucasus, the Russians and the, um, the um, can't remember now, they'll, they'll come to me in a second. In the Caucasus, the, the yeah. Russians conspired, I'm sorry? Yeah, the Russians carrying in, sorry, sorry, the Russians? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the Russians um, conspired with uh, Christians in the Caucasus region, but primarily in the Balkans, it was really the Austrians and the Hungarians, and then eventually the Russians kind of took over from there. Uh, with the Russians and the British trying to compete in that great game stuff in the later 19th century. But this Millet system had good and bad, as I mentioned, it allowed um, significant religious freedom. Um, there's a, after the, um, an example of, of the religious freedom the Ottomans provided is that after the Spanish defeated the Muslim powers in Iberia and Muslims and Jews had two choices, either leave Iberia or convert to Catholicism or die. So most of them, many of them fled, but the Ottoman emperor, I can't remember his, which Ottoman emperor it was right now. He sent a fleet of ships. Which one was it? Sultan Bayezid II. Okay, Sultan Bayezid II. He sent a fleet of ships to bring Jewish people from Iberia into the Ottoman Empire. And there's a, there's a thriving Jewish community within the Ottoman Empire and where it's, I, I don't want to get off topic, but it's amazing that the narrative has come that Muslims are anti-Semitic when um, we Muslims have been heavily involved in the, the best times for Jewish history, out other than biblical times, was when they lived amongst Muslims. That was the, yeah. some of their most prosperous times. And a lot of it was within the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Also within the um, other Muslim that, empires. But I agree, like, the fact that the Jews and Muslims were able to, because they, that's why Bayezid, Sultan Bayezid II is known as Bayezid the Saint, because he was, he mm -hmm. allowed um, Jews and Muslims to come into, uh, into the Ottoman Empire and live there freely, like, and this was actually a case even um, during 1900s and the reign of Sultan Abdul Hamid II, a lot of Jews were thrown out of Russia and they were ships, mm -hmm. ships and a lot of them were allowed into Ottoman lands. And this is another thing as, as you were saying. And when we talk about, um, yeah, the Russians, they were cooperating with the Christians in the Caucasus and it's a reason for their downfall. But we have to remember that the, the Muslims within the empire as well, they led to a lot of downfall because yeah. instead of uniting um, against the Byzantine or whatever empire there was, there was always conflict. You had, even at the time of Sultan Mehmed, like his uncle, I think it was Orhan, mm -hmm. uh, what's his name, Orhan? I can't remember his uncle's name, but he was staying within, with the Byzantine emperor, living a lavish lifestyle. Right. Then you have, right. And that's obviously internal issues. Then even after Sultan, um, Fatih Sultan Mehmed, his son, Chem Sultan, rebelled against uh, his brother Bayezid and he had the whole rebellion, him going with the Pope, him going with whatever, drinking, like, all of these issues as well. And then you had the Mamluks on one side, you had the Safavids on the other side. You had the, the only empire really that the Ottomans had good relations with, Islamic empire, I'm, I'm saying, was the Mughals, right? Because the Mughals were in India, so they, they had good relations yeah. with them, the Mughals accepted them as the Caliph after they took over. And, and when we talk about Ottoman history, um, so we're going we're to get to the downfall in a second, but we talk about um, their conquest. They, we can't just talk about them conquering Byzantine lands and stuff, because realistically, 
they also conquered the entire Levant, Egypt. Yeah. All this, and this was controlled by Muslims. Like, it wasn't just they were fighting against the Byzantines. Yeah, you can say, oh, the Mamluks were corrupt. The Ottomans brought back like the legitimacy of the claim. But at the end of the day, it's Muslims who are fighting their own kind, like their own religion. So this is another issue. Like we can't, uh, we we shouldn't sugarcoat history. We when we we have to talk about the truth. Like the Ottomans fought mm-hmm. Muslims. They fought Christians as well. And yeah, there were some people who were uh, Ottoman subjects who were cooperating with the Russians because, for example, you, we can never underestimate. Like it's, it's human nature because you have the Christians who was used to ruling that, like for example Serbia, who have a chance to be able to be the ruling power again if the Russians help them revolt, and instead of being under a Muslim power, who yeah they might have been treating them fairly, but it's like which one would they rather prefer? And then, but with the Islamic one, it's all about they just want the power for themselves, not for their people, but for themselves. So mm-hmm. it's like that. That is, I think, another reason for the collapse of the Ottomans is because of the corruption within the empire, within even the sultans oh, yeah. or grand viziers. And mm-hmm. when I was oh, sorry, we were just about to talk about about Suleiman the Magnificent. Even him as a sultan, yeah, he did so much for the empire, the golden age of the Ottoman Empire the flourishing of the state, the economy was flourishing, religious freedom, all of this stuff. But he ended up killing two of his sons. He killed his best friend, Ibrahim uh, Palgari. He he did all of these stuff as well. Like we have to remember that with a great leader that also comes like consequences of his actions. Mm -hmm. So that's um, I think a crucial point as well. Um, Right now, um, Muslims fighting Muslims is uh, that's been going on since almost the beginning of Islam. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, it is an unfortunate um, reality that humans are going to disagree with each other. Yeah. And it started almost from, not from the very beginning, first but right. yeah, from the first fitna with the um, assassination of Uthman ibn Affan, right. um, with, his, with his assassination, which was done by Muslims, and then the uh, splitting apart, the conflict between Ali and Muawiyah, the um, the conflicts from that point on, uh, like the Umayyads taking over from the Umayyads. Yeah, there was the golden age of Islam, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, like, it's, you have to take history with a bit of salt, in my opinion. Like, you can't just say, "Oh, the Ottomans—they were so amazing; they did not deserve." Like, right, right. Everything you have to take with a bit of salt, because, for example, we might say that the Ottomans treated their subjects fairly, but with that, they had to the subject, the Christian subject, for example. They would pay the jizya tax, right? Like for living in, in mm-hmm. that region, and this is not something that they used to. So a lot of them, if you look at it, it's like a lot of people in that time would have converted to Islam to get out of paying this tax, so they don't have to pay this tax. And right. yeah, this I think when you look at it this way, in today's society, this is like you can't even um, it's unimaginable. But back then, this would be better than living. In Spain, in Spain, fourteen ninety two, when you killed for being a Muslim or a, or a Jew, unless you got kicked out of the entire land, so it's not a forced conversion, but it's like they're they're saying, look, you can remain your religion, but you give us money, and then we'll we'll let you be and whatever. But then if you convert to Islam, right. it's it's a different it's a different story. So it's not a forced conversion, and also you had the whole idea of the Janissaries, right? The Dev Dev Shirme, who were uh, and this is a, um, we'll come into, because all the points that we're making right now, yeah, it might seem that we're going a bit off topic, but it'll all link back mm-hmm. to the fall of the Ottomans. Because with the Janissaries, you have 
the fact that at the beginning they were brought in elite soldiers, they were seen uh, undefeatable in battle from like 1400s or 1389 um, or whatever it was to the 1600s. They were def they were undefeatable. They were so powerful. They conquered Constantinople. They conquered Hungary. They conquered Bulgaria. They conquered all this land. They conquered Saudi Arabia. Uh, they conquered Hijaz, Egypt, Levant, all this land. But then they started, I think you see this a lot. When the military becomes too powerful, they start thinking of themselves as yeah. we, we deserve to be in power. You have this the same thing with the samurai, right? The samurai, they think, mm -hmm. okay, we're, we're powerful enough, we deserve to be in power. The Janissaries is the exact same case because they they started off as young Christian boys who would be like not taken by the families, but the, they were the, yeah, they would basically be taken by the families and they would be brought up as Muslim and some and the, the smart ones would go into court so you'd have a lot of the Ottoman court would be made up by these Janissaries um, or the Devshid Ray kids and then you had the people who weren't as smart who were better in combat being um, the, the warriors so with the Devshid Ray you'd have people like Ibrahim Palgari or however you say his name sorry if I messed up his name he would become the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire he started off as a young Christian boy and he became the, the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire. Then you had others like the Janissaries who were the elite soldiers of the Ottomans who would be at the Sultan's side, whatever. And this is about the thing when the the the, the killing of the Janissaries, um, mm -hmm. the massacre obviously, it was they killed every single Janissary man. Because eventually the Janissaries, they didn't become just from those boys. People could apply, they would become just a bunch of free men who wanted, right. to, become, who wanted to just be a soldier. And they would just rule the state. They, they would, um, they killed Yavuz. Sorry, not Yavuz. They would take the Sultan down. Osman the second. They they um, removed him. Ibrahim the first. They removed him. They and then when you get to the time of um, Selim the third, who was a great reformer, who defeated even Napoleon in battle. He was he was making things maybe look up for the Ottomans. Then he got deposed by the Janissaries. And then there his brother. And then Mahmud the second had to Mahmud the first was. Yeah, second, sorry, had to come in and change everything up, kill the Janissaries. The killing of the Janissaries, mm -hmm. it might have helped the Ottomans in the short term and in a bit of the long term, but it, it kind of just showed that the Ottomans were beyond repair at this point because their core, their core was beginning to fall apart, right? Right. The um, As you mentioned, this happens uh, uh, with many different societies and cultures. Whenever they try, whenever any empire or state tries to create a an elite fighting force and that military force goes beyond just the battlefield, it becomes part of society. Eventually they have the tools to take over society or to have undue influence on society. There is, um, even outside of Islam, we have, for instance, the, um, during the Crusades, they had the Knights, the Knights, Temp the Knights Templars yeah. who eventually who were initially uh, wealthy nobles who became warrior monks. And even after the Crusaders were kicked out of the Middle East by Salahuddin al-Ayubi, and they reload, they had to go back either to France or wherever they came from, they took those same principles that they had, those warrior, that warrior mentality, took it back to France. And eventually they were able to use their finances, their military organization and discipline to have undue influence in France and in Europe, which and eventually leading to the the French, the King of France, to destroy the uh, Templars as well. This happened in other societies. The uh, in many in many cases um, during the Roman Empire, you had the, the um, 
the Praetorian Guard, I believe, who overthrew um, different emperors that they didn't care for and installed sometimes their captain or somebody or whatever politician they preferred. Uh, this happens often in society when you have the military have too much um, influence on government and politics. With the Janissaries, they did start off as primarily a fighting force, just military alone, but their victories led to them becoming wealthy and wealth led to power and also into to status and uh, influence. And as you mentioned, at some point in time, uh, it became possible where you didn't necessarily have to be um, be a slave boy taken into the uh, janissary ranks. You could just you know fill out paperwork or just apply. A regular person could apply to become a janissary, just which is pretty much what happened with the Knights Templars. You didn't have to take take didn't have to um, be a, a warrior monk or take a vow of uh, celibacy or anything like that to become a Templar. Just simply. Once they uh, got kicked out of uh, the Middle East and went back to Europe, anyone could become a Templar if they had the money and went through their ridiculous orientation and all the um, all all that uh, halfway satanic stuff they had to do to become a nice Templar. But um, be that as it may, uh, the Janissaries didn't have all all that stuff, I'm sure. But still, they opened it up to pretty much anyone who had the money and and the um, and the, the influence to become part of it. And so you had a bunch of people who were bureaucrats and they, they, weren't, they stopped being effective on the battlefield, which is, uh, they, weren't, they were slowly losing, the Janissaries continued to, I'm talking about later in the Ottoman Empire now, uh, 16th, 17th century or so, well, 17th to 18th century or so, uh, when they kept losing, the, they lost a string of battles of wars against the Russians and different, co different Christian coalitions and the Janissaries weren't effective. They weren't allowing the Ottoman Empire to advance militarily. Um, the yeah. rest of the world was was moving in a different way, come, becoming more and more modern. Um, the industrial era was starting to kick off. Was starting to kick off, and the Janissaries had the influence and the strength to hold that back. Besides the Janissaries, there are other Muslims, um, even sometimes um, um, Muslim scholars, and and it's hard to. Um, there's a, this happens often, and this is maybe a, a common theory or a common idea where um, Islamic scholars or people within the um, scholarly elite within Islam, the ulama, the alam class or the ulama class of Islam, yeah. they may try to hold back technical advances uh, because they, they may rightfully see the harm in those technical advances. But sometimes you have to wonder how much is this for their own opportunistic beliefs because they're, they're afraid that this might diminish their their influence, or is it really because they believe that this uh, technical advance, for instance, in television, there was a conflict in Saudi Arabia when television was first was first introduced. Um, there was a there was a conflicts with um, within the Ottoman Empire itself with like the printing, the, uh, like that, right? yeah, printing press trying to modernize the the um, empire. And there was uh, accusations of the Ottoman Empire trying to become more Western. And these things, there's some, there was some truth in that. The Ottoman Empire was starting to be influenced by the West by the time, the, um, towards the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s, they were starting to be influenced by the West. And that was true, but you know, they really needed to advance. You have to remember mm -hmm. though, like the West at this time, as much as we, we don't want to admit it, they were way more advanced than the Ottoman Empire. Like they Absolutely, yeah. Industrial Revolution. And I think, okay, for me, I think there's, five main reasons for the Ottoman Empire's falling. You have, mm -hmm. for me, the Tanzimat reforms, 
which kind of brought about thing like nationalism and were the beginning of modernization but also the fact that it brought about ideas which would bring an end to the ottoman empire then you have mm-hmm. stuff like the ottomans relations with europe so the british the french the russians the, the french invasion of egypt then you had like the british saying okay no egypt's under muhammad ali's control then the british opened the suez canal and took over egypt like they're, they're them in europe and the fact that a lot of foreign loans are beginning to be taken during the 1800s right, right? And then mm-hmm. um, you have nationalism within the empire, right? Like this nationalism began after the Tanzimat reforms and it kind of made it so people were no longer proud to be an Ottoman. They were like, I'm um, Albanian, I'm Serbian, I'm Bulgarian, I'm Turkish. I'm not Ottoman. I'm not from the Ottoman Empire. So, you know what I mean? So that, that kind mm-hmm. of brought about like, and then you had stuff like Sultan Abdul Hamid II's, like de- uh, de- um, people, de- the Young Turks deposing him and the Young Turk Revolution. Right. And the last reason I would say is the Ottomans in World War One and how it led to things like the Arab Revolt and stuff like that, right? Like, that was a massive mm-hmm. reason for the Ottomans' demise, in my opinion. Right, right. With the um, Tanzimat reforms, one of the things that they did was, um, was to upgrade or to modernize their education system, which is something that the ulama were against because the island generally controlled the education system at that point is they say they sent a lot of young people to Europe to learn sciences, technology, and, and learn basically get European education. Those young people came back and they brought nationalism along with them. Um, they they saw the nationalism happening with the French, British, Belgi- Belgians, uh, Austrians, and all these sorts of people. They came back and they brought that same nationalism with them which eventually led to, um, initially started, there was a group called the Young Ottomans, which were the forebearers to the, um, to, to the Young Turks. Yeah. Uh, the, the Young Turks were, even though there's not one single group that you can pinpoint as the Young Turks, they were um, a group of people who were pretty much didn't like the Ottoman Sultan or wanted, or wanted the Ottoman Empire to become more, more westernized. Constitutional mm-hmm. monarchy where... Yeah, yeah. To be fair to to be fair to the Young Turk River, like the Young Turks in general, Sultan Abdul Hamid uh, was the first Sultan to open the Constitution, eighteen seventy six to eighteen seventy eight. He was the first person to open the Constitution. He closed it because it, the Ottomans were not ready for Parliament at that time because there were so many spies within the Empire. Had the Russians like there was a spy called Mithat Pasha who was like the Grand Vizier, but he was leaking mm-hmm. information of the war. Because the Ottomans straight away in 1877 went to war with Russia. So uh, you had these people within the parliament leaking information to the Russians. So then that's a major issue. So it's understandable. But I feel that if Sultan Abdul Hamid II had opened the parliament sooner, maybe it wouldn't have less, less, uh, led to his um, downfall as the Sultan. Because with the Young Turk Revolution, it led to such strict conditions of the Sultan. How he wasn't allowed to do this, he wasn't allowed to do that. It kind of just restricted him to the point where there was no point of him even being there. There was a counter-rebellion and then he was deposed and his brother came in. And his brother didn't even mm-hmm. compete against the Young Turks for any voice or anything. And, right. and it, all originates from, it all originates from the Tanzimat reform. Like, yeah, it was the beginning of modernization, but for me, it's too late. It was too late. I was at a point where the Ottomans, they were going to fall at some point. And the Tanzimat reforms, it just brought about it quicker than it could have. Because the modernization happened too late 
and the people weren't prepared and then you had the people like the Sultan living lavish lifestyle such as um, Abdul Aziz, Sultan Abdul Aziz who just lived such a lavish lifestyle investing in so yeah. many palaces and stuff like that he wasn't a bad Sultan, don't get me wrong, like, he wasn't a terrible Sultan but it just kind of led to Ottoman bankruptcy the Tanzimat reforms also meant, meant that the Ottomans had to take more foreign loans um, which made them more reliant on other empires, which they, the empires could use against them, right? Like the British, the French, right, right. Against them. And they were losing a lot of territory. Algeria, they lost in 1826 to the French. And it was something that's not even like remembered, barely used to remember, because it's like such as for the Ottomans, it was, it was a minor loss. But realistically, you had people like uh, Amir Abdul Qadir, who was fighting for 20 years against the French in um, Algeria still. So, it's it's one of these things within the Tanzimat reforms, the fact that it brought with nationalism with it, and it brought the secular ideas that is is present in was present in France, but within the Ottoman Empire, which is a caliphate, it was not really needed secularism because it's a caliphate at the end of the day. It's, it's their main role right. is to be the Grand Mufti and stuff like that. For a, for a, someone who brings secularism in, it kind of defeat defeated the. The Sultan and the the Caliph's authority, in my opinion, as well. Right. Uh, re regarding the fall of Abdul Hamid II, um, much of that was, as I mentioned, warfare and politics is, is where I really um, clue in on. Much of that came from, and this is where we have to be also be careful because there's lots of conspiracy theories regarding this part. At this point in time, uh, before World War One started, the uh, Ottoman Empire still controlled Thessalonica. Which is now part of Greece, yeah. And the first army was based, and um, the infamous first army was based in Thessalonica, or Salonica, as it was, I believe, it was called at that time by the Ottomans. And that segment of the army was rife with um, secret, secret organizations. Um, many, the three pashas who eventually led the empire into the war, all came from were all based in that region. They were all part of the army. Uh, one of the Pashas was, uh, he was, uh, I believe, a post, postmaster general in that, in that region. He wasn't part of the army itself. But still, there were, there were lots of conspiracy happening in that region of, in that region of the Ottoman Empire, this outpost. And also, um, I believe Kamal Ataturk actually, Kamal, uh, Mustafa Kamal actually came out of the first army as well, um, eventually as well. So there was, um, there was a lot of uh, conspiracy going on in this part, in that region of uh, the Ottoman of the Ottoman uh, military military um, establishment, and eventually that um, I've got the chain of events now that that led to the, his, the, that led to that first. I believe it was in 1909, 1908, where they overthrew yeah, um, Abdul Hamid II. Okay, 1908 was the re revolution, and they let mm -hmm. him stay in charge for basically a few months. But then there was a coup, right. which tried to put right, him right. That, we were third him. army. Yeah, and Abdul Hamid claimed for this and deposed in favor of his brother. Yeah, and they finally deposed him after the third. I believe the third army was one that supported him. Yeah, um, that was. It's like yeah. of this, because as we were talking earlier, like it's within the empire itself. There was so much, um, what's it called, controversy and issues going yeah. on within the empire that. They couldn't, they couldn't unite to focus on expanding. After the 17th century, sorry, after the 18th century, after the, siege, the second siege of Vienna, the Ottoman Empire gained only like two territories after that point. And I think it was like mm -hmm. Kuwait and Qatar, so barely anything. 
back then Kuwait and Qatar were nothing. Today, right. <laughs> Kuwait and Qatar are like crazy. But back then it was just like um, a ceremonial piece of land. Even the emirs at the time were very like they were just it was a desert, right? So they, they they didn't they didn't have much power, um, and that was that was it. The Ottomans barely had any power. They were losing territory, and their connection. So as I said, like the reasons. We talked about the Tanzimat reforms. We talked a bit about the Sultan Abdul Hamid II and a bit about nationalism was all. But another issue was the Ottomans in Europe. Like, as you're saying, I think uh, a good thing about this, the, the ways that I've done it, is all of them linked together realistically, right? The Tanzimat reforms, right. their, their relations with Europe because they were sending um, people to learn there. And then it links to the fact that nationalism was brought in, which links to the fact that Sultan Abdul Hamid was deposed. So all of it links together. And it's, for me, the Ottomans' relations with Europe, it was better than any other relations that any other Islamic empire had up to that point, because they weren't, they weren't like, obviously World War One they went to war, but it wasn't crazy at the time. It was, they had good relations mm-hmm. with some, especially Germany, like Kaiser Wilhelm, he visited the Ottoman Empire, he visited the Sultan, uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid, like, a few times, and that is showing their good relations with Germany. And this, I think, also damaged some of his relations with the Ottomans' relations with the likes of Britain and France because Britain and France didn't want Germany at the time growing because this is straight after Prussia, like the Germ- Germans were right. growing really rapidly. But that's going a bit off topic. The Ottomans, mm-hmm. their relations with Europe really damaged them because the fact that they had to take so many foreign loans allowed the Europeans to just, just use them as puppets, you know? They took over Egypt without a dispute. The British took it. We want Egypt because we've got the Suez Canal. We take it. No problem. The Greece gained um, freedom. Bosnia was annexed by the Austro-Hungarians in 1908. Crete fell. Libya fell in 1911. You have all these stuff happening within Turkey. Like even even, um, and this is all after. When you think about it, like Abdul Hamid in his reign, he lost in the beginning of his reign. He lost. Um, half of the Balkans because of the war with Russia. But that was straight, that was right. mainly due to his brother. And then he lost Egypt, but he couldn't do anything. Egypt was actually under mixed control. Like they said that there was um, like a Pasha who was ruling. I think it was Fuat Pasha or something like that, who was ruling and he's technically right. Ottoman, technically British, both really. And then after that, there was a period where the Ottomans were doing quite well for themselves. 1896, they had a successful war against the, the Greek that lasted a couple of years, um, and they won it, so they gained a bit, gained a bit of land there, and it, and it was shown that the Ottomans could still hold their own against some of these, um, some of their foes, and they were making deals there. The Hijaz railway was built, being built, that uh, connected Sarajevo to Mecca. Then they had the Baghdad railway, which was going to connect Germany to um, Baghdad, which is like a crazy distance. And here, all these stuff going on, and the Ottomans finally looked like they were. They were going to go somewhere and redo what they were doing in the past, with, especially with Sultan Abdul Hamid. He was doing a great job with the education system and all that stuff. But then the the debt hit them really hard because they they were bankrupt in 1875. So all of this that they had to take so much loans, and it's it's this and the fact that the British and French could just take land if they wanted to, really from the Ottomans, that devastated their powers. Right, right. Um, I'm going to have to uh, hop off to praise on this um, Salato door over here. So I'm, I'm going to pray in a few seconds. But um, 
re regarding that, yeah, that period of Abdul Hamid II up until his uh, deposition by the Young Turks was uh, an, um, a period of peace within the Ottoman Empire and the fact that they they weren't having these devastating wars against the Russians that they were having throughout much of the 1800s. Um, there was um, some stability coming along. It was still wasn't to the level of the other the great European powers, but standard of, the standard of living for the typical Ottoman subject was better than the standard of living for the typical Russian serf. They were doing much better than the typical Russian toiling away in the soul in the in the, in the fields under the Tsar and halfway starving to death. That that wasn't happening in the Ottoman Empire, in the Ottoman Empire for the typical Ottoman subject. But the um, the lead up to the war, the war was crazy. Let me not have to go into all the details of what led to the war. Everybody kind of knows the the crazy um, the crazy agreements each nation had with each other and all the, the fall of dominoes. They were forced into joining the war, and especially Ismail Enver, who made the decision. Yeah, they were. It's, it's another thing that. The Ottomans just used the fact that they had the caliph in their hands to their advantage, but actually the caliph had no power. So they called for right, jihad right. against the British and French. They actually didn't have an alliance, because it's interesting that the issue mm -hmm. with the Ottomans joining Germany and Austro-Hungarian uh, Austro Empire was they were all that landlocked, realistically. Germany and Austro-Hungary were landlocked. The Ottomans were the only empire, really, to have any um, naval force that could go in and out, like that they controlled the land. And it's this that really hurt, like really hurt the Ottomans because if they had joined with the British or French or Russians or whatever, even though the, Ottoman, uh, the Germans were a strong ally, it could have helped them so much more. Even Abdul Hamid II, because he was still alive at this point, he would say he said that he wouldn't have joined with the um, Germans or the Austro-Hungarians because they were landlocked, and he would rather have stayed neutral during the war, which could have protected his land. But because they held such mm -hmm. a strategic location, it was almost impossible. Um, and interesting stuff to note within World War One. Sorry, we'll finish up in a few minutes. But um, an interesting point to note about World War One is that it was there were so many secret agreements. The Arab Revolt. The Arab Revolt was such a crucial event in history because right. that now the kind of like for example the siege of Mecca, it just destroyed it like it harmed a Islamic city. And it was all because, realistically, the Ottomans, yeah, we can't, I think for, when we're talking about the Arab Revolt, we cannot just blame the Arabs for what they did. Because, realistically, the Ottomans, after they conquered Hijaz and Levant and Egypt in um, 1512, I think, or 1517, under Suleiman, um, Selim I, they kind of just left it. And they didn't put too much investment in it, they didn't do too much with it. And only when oil was discovered, really, 1920s, the Ottomans are, oh, look, shoot, we, we missed all of this. Like, this was huge. And it mm -hmm. was this reason that the Ottomans, that the Arabs felt that, okay, look, we're being underappreciated here. The British are promising us all this land. And yeah, there was a lot of side dealing going on with Russia and France, um, the Sykes-Yuko agreement. We don't need to go into too much detail because it's beyond what we need to discuss. But the Sykes-Yuko agreement basically just is the line which separated French holdings of Syria and um, Lebanon and British holdings of Iraq, Kuwait, Qatar and then Saudi Arabia, which was um, Saudi Arabia, which was promised the South family. They were promised all of Arabia. They've given a small chunk of it. Yemen and Oman are still under British control. And I think that's mm -hmm. another thing that showed 
the trickiness of the British, like how they tricked everyone into believing they you'll get this, you'll get this, but actually they just used they beat them in the war. They used anything they could get to beat the Ottomans in the war, and then they just finished them off. And the Arab revolt was a key reason for this. World War One we discussed, and I think the last thing really we can discuss is nationalism, and then we would have finished off why we think the Ottomans fell because we talked a bit about how the beginning. The, we talked a bit about the beginning and how that kind of led to their downfall because of um, the various stuff that was going on. We talked a bit about that and I think we missed out one thing about Sultan um, Kosem and Sultan of a woman, which kind of brought a downfall to the Ottomans yeah. because he had these regents who didn't know how to rule a state really. Um, it's true, like, these were just random people who were um, concubines at the time of Suleiman and then Suleiman married Ruxalana and Kosem, she didn't get married to Ahmed. And she was the regent. She ruled over the entire Ottoman Empire behind a curtain. And she killed two of her sons to keep the state. Like, this, a lot of this stuff is just scandalous and all these things happening. And that's just that's just in the 1600s when the Ottomans were thriving. And then we get to the 1900s when they were at a point of decline. And I think now we just finished talking about nationalism. And then we can say our final words. So if you want to give some information about nationalism, then we can finish off, inshallah. Okay, well, nationalism does kind of feed into the Arab revolt, which I am fairly familiar with after um, doing the uh, series on, on World War One. And uh, the Arab, Arab revolt to me is always a misnomer because most Arabs didn't, part didn't participate in it. It was, um, there were some, it, it all started with, um, well, here's when it all started, but there were, um, as the Ottoman, as the young Ottomans, or as the Tanzimat reforms led to Turkish nationalism, that alienated lots of non-Turks, obviously including Arab Muslims who were living under the Ottoman domains. And that led to um, secret, secret societies, secret organizations that were Arab nationalists or, or that, that sponsored or promoted Arab nationalism, particularly in Damascus and Syria. Uh, not so much in the other parts of the Arab world, but spe specifically Damascus and Syria. And the... Um, the main architect or the main person behind the Arab, the so-called Arab revolt, because again, most Arabs stayed loyal to the Ottoman Empire. There's only a few of them. Yeah. But there was Sharif Hussein, um, of course, uh, the Sharif or the governor of Mecca. He initially, he was loyal to um, Abdul Hamid II. He preferred Abdul Hamid II. He did not like the Young Turks. Um, he did not like the government. He did not like the Turkish nationalism that they were promoting. And uh, he was enticed into it by the British. Um, and we have to get how that turned against them was, yeah. was um, well, in the beginning, the first British um, defense minister, can't remember his name right now, um, but he was, he of course, when he enticed um, Sharif Hussein talking about giving him an Arab caliphate, returning the caliphate to the Arabs, which, we we can see now would have meant that it was just been a, a British controlled a British puppet state a British controlled caliphate, which the British would use to control Muslims and control the Muslims under their domain. That's all they would have. It had it turned out that way. That's all they would have done. Yeah. But of course, the British made a bunch of promises to a bunch of people, and they couldn't keep them all. And the Muslims and the Arabs got the short end of that stick. And you had people mm -hmm. like Lawrence, um, T. Uh, T. E. Lawrence of Arabia, who went in and just spread Arab nationalism. Readers over and say, "He's what are you doing there, man? You're a you're a British spy within there, and he was trying to say we yeah. deserve our freedom. You're not even Arab. He's not even an Arab, but he. And to be fair, 
it, even in the movies that they show World War One, like they show Lawrence of Arabia, his own movie, they show him as if he was like some brilliant man bringing freedom to the like barbaric Arabs. It's none of this is true realistically, because right. the the Arab report was Arab. It wasn't anything to do with. Yeah, he led some of the battles and he spread the nationalism, but it was an Arab-led revolt that was inspired by the British. But the British did very. Right. They had a small, small part to play in terms of like the actual battles and stuff. Right. The, the main thing the British did was that they were able to bribe a lot of the Arab tribes to, to support Sharif yeah. Hussein. Most Arabs, as I mentioned, most Arabs did not support this Arab revolt, and those who did had to be bribed. The British paid them like millions of pounds, <laughs> yeah, mil millions of pounds to get these people to support um, Sharif Hussein. Every time Sharif Hussein fought or the Arab, Arab revolt forces fought against the Ottomans, they lost until British troops came in, either from India or from Egypt. Um, these are British British trained troops, so they were may have been Muslim. They were Muslim as far as their religious practices, but they were British troops in every other respect. And that's the only time they were able to beat the Ottomans in most cases. Um, either and so, and then at the same time they were making all of these promises to the um, to the members of the Arab Revolt, uh, Sharif Hussein and his sons um, Faisal and uh, I can't remember the other guy. Um, Abdullah, Abdullah, um, yeah. Faisal and Abdullah. He's making, but well, they're making these promises to Sharif Hussein, Faisal, and Abdullah. They're making counter promises to the French and counter promises to the to the Zionists, and so they're making all these promises to all these different people. And the Muslims were the ones, the Arabs were the ones who got the short end of the stick because they got their lands divided. They were colonized, and, and realistically, yeah. I think, and I think it was this right, like. The British, they promised all these land, all these people for this land and stuff like that. But realistically, the lands that they even, the, even the sykes co line, all this stuff, it was to keep, and most of it's still in part today. That's why you have mm -hmm. um, these nations which are beginning to fail and stuff like that. It's because it was to keep all these um, people who don't belong together. You had the Kurds, you had the Sunnis, you had the Shias, you had, who were, it was, it was natural for them to be in conflict together so that they wouldn't rise up against the the British and uh, make them fall apart. So they did this right. purpose. They wanted to cause all this disarray and distress within their uh, within the their lands, so that they wouldn't the people in the lands wouldn't be able to rise up and fight the British. And yet, to be fair, it was successful for them. But it's obviously a completely completely cruel thing to do, and it's not something that they should be proud upon. And it's always this like when we see the fall of the Ottomans, we talk a bit about the British, the French. But it's not just one reason, so many reasons, it's such a complex history. We talk about the rise of the empire, but the like the, the fundamentals of the empire also led to its downfall. The beginning of the empire led to the fall of the empire, if you know what I mean. Right, right. That's um that may be in you could probably put that with any within the um empires that they're um what made them successful also holds the seed for what makes them what eventually leads to their downfall. Uh, that would probably be um, the case of just about any empire. The Ottomans had many practices that I find uh, <laughs> I, that I would disapprove of. Uh, yeah. One thing, uh, fratricide, but also their um, practice of um, of um, castration, um, which is probably going to go way deeper than what you want to go into. So I'll try to keep it very, very brief and very, very light. But there was um the ottomans the ottoman empire or at least people within the ottoman empire practiced castration of 
of because uh, they had to have people watch over watching over their harems and yeah. castrating people is not something that comes from the Quran or comes from the Sunnah Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is something that the Ottomans used for their own purposes. And some of this, and this is, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to get too deep into it because it's a, it's a very sensitive topic. Yeah, I agree. It's fine. But when we look at the Ottoman, <laughs> when we look at the Ottoman Empire, we can't say, we can say it's an Islamic empire, but all these empires they're inspired by their own culture as well. Realistically, right, right. They have, they have their, their own, own things going. The way that they do things, fratricide is not justified Islamically. They use like one verse, mm-hmm. whatever. Realistically, let's be real. It's not. It's not going to be justified by the Quran killing your own brother and stuff like that. All of this stuff right. that you mentioned, I'm not going to say, but all of this stuff is it's more cultural than anything else. And when we look at the empire, we could say it's an Islamic empire. Yeah, it was a caliphate for God's sake. It was obviously an Islamic empire, but it's also a Turkish empire. It was influenced a lot by its culture, by its time, slavery, all this stuff, by its time. Because yeah, we can talk about how there was slavery going on until 1908 in the empire, but. That was mm-hmm. the norm at the time of, of the empire and the, the tradition and everything like that. Obviously, today it's not going to ever be practiced and like, it should never be practiced. But that was the normal period of time that happened. And it's it's when you take, like, for example, the Khalifat uh, al-Rashidun, we'd never say anything bad about it because that was an empire that was run without any corruption realistically because of the fact that it wasn't a dynasty. Because with the dynasty... You're placing your yeah, and, and there's no this look your dynasty. It's the way that things have been run for thousands and thousands of years. It's it's, it's not like a criticism dynasty, but with that you're giving the mantle of sultan of the leader to someone who might not be as qualified. Murad the um, fourth was like what, eleven years old when he became sultan. Like right. you can't give the power to someone like that young, but where with the um, Rashidun you had. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu giving it to Umar radiallahu anhu so very very qualified. Then you had the six the six men who were chosen, and then Uthman radiallahu anhu was chosen. Then Ali radiallahu anhu, and then so on and so on and so on. Well, sorry, Ali and then um, Hassan radiallahu anhu, and then it was ended. Then the Rashidun ended. Then you had the Umayyads, which was a dynasty, right? And the dynasty is not the best right. way of running um, an empire in terms of true like expansion and stuff like that through. Um, as we were saying before, with the Ottomans. And I think that's it, really, of, about why the Ottoman Empire fell. Do you have any final uh, things that you want to say? Yeah, um, I want to bring this back, and I always want people to understand, um, regarding the Arab revolt, last thing I want to mention is that um, we always we can't... Even though I, I talk about history and politics and, and, and warfare, I always like bringing it back to the spiritual side of it as well, is to understand that Sharif Hussein um, he was the one who opened fire in the holiest city in the world, in, in Mecca. He started a, a revolt, even though he may have disagreed with the uh, young Turks. They were his; um, they were the rulers at that time. He had sworn; he had made an, an allegiance with the um, Ottoman Caliphate at the time, and so to turn against him like this was um, definitely a disreputable and and wrong thing for him to do, especially in the city of Mecca, of all places. To open fire and the um, to open fire against yeah. against to launch the a revolt against the Caliphate in the city of Mecca, mm-hmm. can't get worse than that. And for all of his efforts, what did he? This is where I I can't say what a lot that you know this was uh, the plan of a lot. I can't say that I don't have that. So I'm not, I don't have that insight of in any case. But it seems it seems very very coincidental that he did all these things that were 
absolutely negative, bad things or haram things to do. And the end of the day, he wound up with nothing. He wound up having his small king, the British betrayed him, gave him a small sliver of land of, of, um, that they call the kingdom of Hijaz, the Saudi government or the Saudi family, Abdulaziz ibn Saud eventually took over his land. He wound up living in exile as a, as a subject of the British and under British protection and lost almost everything. His sons, um, the Jordan, Transjordan continued to exist today, but his son Faisal was the British created. <laughs> he could, his son Faisal couldn't have Syria, so the British manufactured out of thin air a, 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 a um, Hashemite kingdom in, in Iraq, in Iraq, and his son Faisal lost that. Uh, he eventually died, but then his dynasty was wiped out by the Iraqis. And we know what happened to Iraq after that, all the constant revolutions and Saddam Hussein and all the, and yeah. where it is right now. And so it just seems it's, it's very difficult. I, I will have to say that Allah knows best, but, you know, Allah's took care of them in, in, in the end. Allah took care of it yeah, in the end like, where he did all of it. It's like, mm -hmm. for me, when... I, I like to see at both sides of the story. You can't I, for me you can't just judge it on one side. I think mm -hmm. Sharif Hussein himself was very power hungry, and but you can understand. Right. But you have to un you, you can understand the fact that where he's coming from in terms of he wants his own independent land from the Arabs. He doesn't want to be controlled by the Turks. Like that that I can understand. But he didn't have to invade the holiest site of uh, Mecca. When the Ottomans were defeated, they were defeated. They, there's no hope for them at that point. When they were defeated mm -hmm. in um, Hijaz in the upper parts of the Hijaz and um, other parts of that that um, of Saudi, he didn't need to. That that, that kind of upsets me. And, and when you look at the fall of the Ottoman, it all coincides with everything. Like every, everything comes together. You have the Tanzimat reforms. You had even the fact that the Janissaries were very became very politically motivated. You had the fall of Islamic law. Basically, you had secularism rising with the Young Turk Revolution, you had, and then eventually the secularism takes over, but we're not going to go into that right now. Um, you had all of these factors which play a huge part in the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and it's not just something that's like a very simple thing, because as we've mentioned today, we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes, or however much it's been. All of this was because, to explain why did the Ottomans fall, and I think we've given fair enough points of why, we've given information on why they fell, and for me it's like, Allah knows best, but Allah knows best and we have to accept whatever's happened has happened and there's no changing history but we can change the future so how can right. we like move forward in terms of this we just it's just like that really like we can we can never change the past we can always change the future and that's that's the main thing at the end of the day right is it okay if I just give a, a short plug for my podcast yeah, I don't wanna of course, man. <laughs> okay well uh before we close I just want to invite all your listeners inshallah to um I'm currently doing a series on the Bosnian War of the 1990s. The beginning part, which we just finished, is talking about the rise of the Ottoman Empire and its conquest of the Balkans and how it eventually took over Bosnia. And I encourage everyone, if um, you like history, if you like long episodic stories, then um, you can look for the Islamic History Podcast on all platforms, all podcast platforms, even YouTube channel, um, Spotify, if you don't. I'll put his link in the description, guys. Make sure to check him out. Okay. This, this topic that he's talking about right now, Bosnian or is something I'm really interested in, and I actually visited Bosnia a couple of years ago, and oh, I'm doing, I'm doing. it was uh, it was a mind blowing experience, and 
yeah, definitely check him out. Islamic History Podcast. I'll put his link in the description. Um, he's making podcasts about long, long, much longer length and much more in detail. Like he, he's giving facts, figures, and with with this with my podcast, I just like having chats with people like you and mm-hmm. like others. For example, last week I made a video with Mike, um, a podcast with Mike History, and we just talk and we just talk about our opinions and what we think of uh, of the historical events and why they actually occurred. So Jazakallah Khairun. Um, do you oh, want yeah. to say uh, any? You said your final words, inshallah. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to think. I, I enjoy the. I enjoy this t- discussion we have. And thank you for inviting me. Um, I'll share links on my platform as well. I, I really hope um, more Muslims get in, get involved and interested in history. However, we do it. We're all contributing towards, hopefully, guiding or leading the ummah to understand more about their history. So I'll definitely share share this with my platform. I've already put out my season, so I can't put it on the podcast yet. But in the next ep- in the next season, I do or in the next episode. I'll, I put in, I will definitely include links to it as much as I can, um, inshallah, so people can know more about it. I thank you very much, uh, Brother Forgotten History. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for inviting me. This has been a very enjoyable experience, and inshallah, I wish you all the success in the future, inshallah. Thank you so much, man. Thanks yeah, man. to everyone who's listening. Um, there'll be a poll, and it's going to ask the question of why do you think the Ottomans fell? And I'll put those reasons up. So I'll say the reason of World War One, nationalism, tantamount reforms. Uh, Young Turk Revolution and the Arab Revolt. I think those are the five reasons I'll put up. So make sure to vote okay. now. Um, I think I know which one I'm going to vote for. Jazakallah Khairun, um, Islamic History Podcast. Thank you, everyone who's listening. Uh, and yeah, 2022 coming up, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.